This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk about slavery and its political legacy in Congress. Here's something we didn't know until last week. More than 1,700 congressmen owned black slaves. Even after the abolition of slavery in 1865, hundreds of men who had owned slaves were senators and members of the House. Even into the 20th century, the last senator who had owned slaves served in 1922. The extent of the power of enslavers explains a lot about racism in American history. And now the Washington Post has compiled the first database of slaveholding members of Congress. For comment, we turn to Eric Foner. Of course, he taught history at Columbia for a long time. His work on Reconstruction and the Civil War won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize. He's also written for the New York Times op-ed page, the TLS, the LRB, and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. Eric, welcome back. Thank you. Nice to see you, John. Well, you compiled the first ever list of black office holders during Reconstruction in the 1860s and 70s. Now the Washington Post has done something similar for what we could call the other side. You were able to identify more than 1,500 African Americans who held political office in the South during the Reconstruction era. That book is called Freedom's Lawmakers, a directory of black office holders during Reconstruction. Creating that list, I know, was hard work. How did you do it? <laughs> yeah, it was hard work because uh, a, a little thing uh, known as the Internet didn't really exist when I was doing that. There was no ancestry. There was no nothing, no Google. So I had to do it the old fashioned way. That is going through uh, archival records, census reports. Um, you know, letters, all sorts of things. Um, and uh, it, it was a, it took a lot of work, but I was very gratified. I was able to identify quite a few, as you said, about 1,500 black men who held some public office. The Washington Post project was about members of Congress, as you said. My book is about all sorts, people from, you know, justice of the peace on up. There were uh, 14 African-Americans who served in Congress during Reconstruction, uh, 14 in the House of Representatives and two in the Senate for a total of 16. Obviously, uh, there were more slave owners than that They're serving as, as uh, members of Congress. And as you said, it, it, these uh, figures that the Washington Post came up with, on the one hand, you might say, well, I'm not really surprised. After all, slavery was so important. And certainly in the South, if you were going to hold public office, you're a slave owner. Every, every congressman from the South just about owned a slave at some point in their life. Uh, but on the other hand, the number is probably higher than one might have expected. Yes. Yes. Uh, and it does, as you said, uh, show us something about the political power of slavery in this country, even after the abolition of slavery. A word here on terminology, the term enslavers is being used now instead of slaveholders, along with enslaved people instead of slaves. Please explain the change here. This is slightly controversial. There are people who don't like using enslaved people or enslavers. I am a little uncomfortable with it because I think the word slave is a well-known word. It does not require explanation. If you say somebody was a slave or a slave owner, 
everybody will know what you mean by saying that. The people who want to change the terminology, uh, they, their argument is, well, somehow calling saying this person was a slave suggests that's the essence of their being. That's That defines them. And we, we don't really say that. These were people, these were men, women, uh, children. They were husbands and wives. They weren't just slaves. And so we should, they were enslaved. Somebody else had put them into this category. Uh, and similarly, the slave owner uh, is now called in some circles the enslaver, that the, the active person is the person who puts you into slavery or owns you, not not the slave. So, you know, look, terminology has changed many, many times, particularly with African-Americans. I mean, you could run down our history. At first, they were called Africans around the time of the American Revolution, colored, Negro with a small N, Negro with a, with a capital N, African-American, uh, Afro-American, now Black with a capitalized B. Uh, is widely used. So uh, there's nothing unusual about terminology changing and how different groups are described. My mentor, Richard Hofstadter, you know who he was, a great historian and a great writer, always told us, if you can use one word instead of three or four, use one. And that's the virtue of slave. <laughs> it's a simple way of describing a situation in which a person is held as a slave. That's a legal category. It's a chattel uh, situation. So I don't want to get into a debate about what we should use. I think many of these are used interchangeably nowadays. Thinking about it does help us think about the long history of slavery in this country. So I will be using them interchangeably. Enslavers in Congress the Washington Post found, represented 37 states, not just the slave states of the Old South, but they said every state in New England, much of the Midwest, and many Western states were represented by slaveholders in Congress. How could that be? Well, of course, at the beginning of the Republic, uh, there were no free states. Every state had slavery of the original 13. New York, where I live, was a slave state well into the 19th a century in terms of slavery being a legal uh, institution, and well-to-do people generally owned slaves. This was not an unusual thing, both in the North and in the South. If you go further West, it becomes a little more tricky because states like Illinois and uh, Ohio, let's say, it never had slavery legally when they were states. The Northwest Ordinance barred slavery in those areas. Nonetheless, Slave owners did move in there, and some of them held slaves, even when it wasn't quite legal to do so. But even putting that aside, there was a lot of geographic mobility. People, you know, people from the South. Let's take Abraham Lincoln, born in Kentucky, a slave state, eventually moved into uh, Indiana and Illinois and served one term in Congress. Now, I don't think Lincoln is on their list because Lincoln never personally owned slaves, but his wife did. He married into a slave-owning family, the Todds. So Lincoln is a person who shows that's how widespread slavery was. So a lot of the people from non-slave states are people who moved in there from the South. Uh, they may not have brought their slaves with them, but they had owned slaves when they were uh, in other states. When was uh, slavery abolished in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania? Something like 1830? Well, it, the thing is that slavery was abolished in those states very gradually. 
The laws that abolished slavery, which were passed during and after the American Revolution, said basically that any child born to a slave henceforth will become free like at age 21 or something like that. So no slave was actually freed by those laws, no living slave. So slavery lingered on by the 18 teens and 20s. New York still had slave owners. Even these were people now getting more elderly. The absolute abolition of slavery in New York didn't come till 1827. So before that, you could certainly have people in uh, public office who own slaves. And again, well-to-do people, that's where they put some of their money. So then, then we have secession. In 1860 and in 1861, 11 southern states seceded. And of course, their lawmakers left Congress. But I was surprised to see that more than 20% of the members who remained in Congress after secession as the Civil War was being fought over slavery, over 20% of the members of Congress were current or former slaveholders during the Civil War. Uh, how could that be? Well, you remember that there were, first of all, these so-called border states, four significant slave states, or at least Delaware, rather small, but Kentucky, Maryland, uh, Missouri, Delaware all remained in the Union as slave states. Their representatives in Congress all owned slaves. Even they were not fighting for slavery. They were fighting for the Union, those states. But nonetheless, uh, their representatives were often uh, slave owners. And then uh, after the Civil War, after the abolition of slavery with the 13th Amendment uh, and after Reconstruction, the old white supremacist ruling class came back into power in the South, and these were people who had owned slaves earlier in their lives. So it shouldn't be surprising that in the 1880s and 1890s, there were plenty of former slave owners representing Southern states uh, in Congress, and even, as you mentioned, into the early 20th century. Of course, there were people who served who had been slave owners and turned against it. There were people like that and said, no, you know, we, we have changed our minds. Slavery is a terrible thing. We're glad it's been abolished. But unfortunately, a lot of white Southerners of the prominent, powerful ones never made that uh, transition. And the Washington Post reported that the first woman ever to serve in the Senate was a former slaveholder. What's the story there? Rebecca Felton. She didn't serve that long in the Senate. I think it was one day, actually. It was a kind of symbolic appointment. She wasn't elected. She was appointed by the governor to fill a vacant seat while Congress was about to go out, out of session. Nonetheless, she was the first woman, a white woman, of course, to hold a seat in the Senate. And But she was uh, not exactly a intersectionalist, if you might <laughs> want to use that word, seeing the connection between different kinds of oppression. She had supported women's suffrage uh, in the southern states, but basically on the grounds that since there were more whites than blacks, the women's suffrage would further enhance white political power uh, in the South and uh, make it impossible for blacks to regain the power they'd had in Reconstruction. I understand she had a theory of the causes of the Civil War. Uh, she viewed the Civil War as a punishment from God for the sins of cruel masters. What did she mean by cruel masters? Yes. By the way, Lincoln said in his second inaugural that the, so the war was a punishment to the nation by God for its sins, but he meant slavery was the sin. 
Uh, Rebecca Felton said that the sin the South was being punished for was miscegenation. That is to say, was white men engaging in sexual relations with black women producing a mixed race uh, class of people in the South. And that sin of interracial rape or whatever it was, uh, that's what the South was being punished for. Now, I have to say, when I was in college studying this period, what were the causes of the Civil War was always a question on the final exam. But acceptable answers I don't think ever included God's punishment for white enslavers having sex with their slaves. Yeah, you know, uh, it would be interesting. That question is also on the immigration a questionnaire or examination that people coming from abroad who want to become American citizens have to take. I wonder how the immigration officer would respond if uh, a, a new migrant from Mexico or from China or somewhere else said, well, the answer to the cause of the Civil War is the uh, interracial sex in the South. Um, probably they would be shipped back to where they came from. No, no, I understand that this same Rebecca Felton was also obsessed not just with white enslavers having sex with their black slaves, but black men having sex with white women. Apparently, that's the case. A lot of this comes from the Washington Post research itself, so we give them credit. It was black rapists she talked about, this mythology. You know, Ida B. Wells, who campaigned against lynching, always said, you know, this is a total myth. Uh, but it was used to justify lynching, including by Rebecca Felton, uh, to say lynching was perfectly justified, in fact, necessary in order to prevent black men from so raping, supposedly, uh, all these white women. In Wilmington, North Carolina, this was one of the causes of the Wilmington riot of uh, 1898, uh, where uh, the local newspaper had uh, said, you know, this whole had said that this was a total myth, the idea of black rapists running amok, but went on to say, you know, it's actually the case that some white women actually love black men and are perfectly happy to have intimate relations with them. This riled up a lot of white people, including Rebecca Felton. And uh, the Wilmington riot uh, seized on this as one of the people who perpetrated it, uh, which led to the death of quite a few black people and the overthrow of the government of Wilmington, North Carolina. Speaking that way about interracial sex was just not acceptable. In, uh, in so, so Felton has a lot to answer for, the first woman. But I hesitate to say not all women members of Congress held to these uh, these views that she did. Big picture here. What is the significance of this finding, which surprised so many of us, that more than 1,700 members of Congress, senators and representatives, owned slaves or had owned slaves while they were in office or before they took office? Well, I, I think the significance is, again, it just shows the political power of slavery and the long afterlife of slavery. We can assume, even though there were some who changed their mind, no question, we can assume that most of these former slave owners didn't think there was anything wrong with, with their having owned slaves. It, it, it shows the depth and the, the longevity of racist views and pro-slavery views uh, in American history. And I think it does shed light all the way down to the present. Today, there is nobody in Congress who owned a slave. I right. think it's fair to say that. But there are not a heck of a lot of black people either in Congress, nor have there ever been. Uh, I think, according to the trustee Wikipedia, 
about 160 black men and women have held positions in Congress in all of American history, 160 of them, whereas 1,700 slave owners, and of course, the vast majority of the blacks are in the last 20, 30 years since the civil rights movement. You know, yeah, it shows the power of slavery, something that is a key factor in American history. Eric Foner, you can read the Washington Post report and look at their database. There's still many dozens of congressmen who they're not sure about, and they've requested that readers provide information. And this is an ongoing uh, project at the Washington Post. Eric, thanks for talking with us today. Great to talk to you, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 